By the grace of God, the most excellent and great sovereign, Prince Pyotr Alexeyevich, the ruler of all the Russias, of Moscow, of Kiev, of Vladimir, of Novgorod, Tsar of Kazan, Tsar of Astrakhan, and Tsar of Siberia, Sovereign of Peskov, Great Prince of Smolensk, Tversk, Ugorsk, Permsky, Vyatsky, Bulgarsky, and others. Sovereign and Great Prince of Novgorod, Nizovsky's lands, Chernigovsky, of Ryazin, of Rostov, of Yaroslavl, Belozorsky, Udorsky, Kundiski, and the sovereign of all the northern lands, and the sovereign of the Iverian lands, of the Kartilian and Georgian kings, of the Karbardin lands, of the Circassian and mountain princes, and many other states and lands, western and eastern, here and there, and the successor and sovereign and ruler. This was the official title of Peter I. Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 190, Peter the Great, A Reassessment. Last time we reassessed the five rulers of Russia between the time of Peter I and Catherine the Great. Today we look at the man many consider the greatest of all the czars of this vast country, Peter the Great. In today's podcast, I'll be using quotes from historians and contemporaries to describe the life and times of this truly extraordinary man, as well as listing his accomplishments and my critiques of his reign. I hope you enjoy it. The first series of quotes come from Robert Massey, who wrote one of the most important biographies of the Tsar, Peter the Great, His Life and World. First is a quote that peeks into Peter's idea about how he would rule Russia. Quote, but curiously, Peter did not grasp, perhaps he did not wish to grasp, the political implications of this new view of man. He had not gone to the West to study the art of government. Although in Protestant Europe, he was surrounded by evidence of the new civil and political rights of individual men embodied in constitutions, bills of rights, and parliaments. He did not return to Russia determined to share power with his people. On the contrary, he returned not only determined to change his country, but also convinced that if Russia was to be transformed, it was he who must provide both the direction and the motive force. He would try to lead, but where education and persuasion were not enough, he would drive, and if necessary, flog the backward nation forward. Next up was this quote about Peter's time in Europe and the great embassy and how it affected the Tsar. Quote, Asking himself how this had happened and what could be done about it, Peter came to understand that the roots of Western technological achievement lay in the freeing of men's minds. He grasped that it had been the Renaissance and the Reformation, neither of which had ever come to Russia, which had broken the bonds of the medieval church and created an environment where independent philosophical and scientific inquiry, as well as wide-ranging commercial enterprise, could still flourish. He knew that these bonds of religious orthodoxy still existed in Russia, reinforced by peasant folkways and traditions which had endured for centuries. Grimly, Peter resolved to break these bonds 
on his return. And finally, a quote about Peter's affliction with epilepsy. Quote, When he was emotionally agitated or under stress from the pressure of events, Peter's face sometimes began to twitch uncontrollably. The disorder, usually troubling, only the left side of his face varied in degree of severity. Sometimes the tremor was no more than a facial tick lasting only a second or two. At other times, there would be a genuine convulsion, beginning with a contraction of the muscles on the left side of his neck, followed by a spasm involving the entire left side of his face and the rolling up of his eyes until only the whites could be seen. At its worst, when violent, disjointed motion of the left arm was also involved. The convulsion ended only when Peter had lost consciousness. The next quote comes from the authors of the seminal work on the history of the great land, the one that I used when I was in college so many years ago. And this is now from the eighth edition. It's called A History of Russia, and it's by Nicholas Ryazanovsky and Mark Steinberg. Quote, Peter the Great was revered and eulogized by the liberals, who envisaged him as a champion of light against darkness, and also by the imperial government and its ideologists. For, after all, that government was the first emperor's creation. Those who hated the reformer and his work included, in addition to the old believers and some other members of the inarticulate masses, such Quixotic romantic intellectuals as the Slavophiles, who fancied to have discovered in pre-Petrine Russia the true principles and way of life of their people, and who regarded the emperor as a supreme perverter and destroyer. It took a sensitive writer like Pushkin to draw a balance emphasizing the necessity and the greatness of Peter's reforms in state, while at the same time lamenting their human cost. And Pushkin, too, was, in fact, overwhelmed by the image of Peter the Great. In this assessment, we get a balance of the good and the bad, which is on par for what most historians feel. There was one, though, uh, Mikhail Pogodin, who felt that Peter was pretty much all good for Russia and cites most of the positive developments. Here is a quote from him that I found in the same book as the last quote. Yes, Peter the Great did much for Russia. One looks and one does not believe it. One keeps adding and one cannot reach the sum. We cannot open our eyes, cannot make a move, cannot turn in any direction without encountering him everywhere. At home, in the streets, in church, in school, in court, in the regiment, and at a promenade. It is always he, every day, every minute, every step. We wake up. What day is it today? January 1, 1841. Peter the Great ordered us to count the years from the birth of Christ. Peter the Great ordered us to count the months from January. It is time to dress. Our clothing is made according to the fashion established by Peter I. Our uniform according to his model. The cloth is woven in a factory he created. The wool is shorn from the sheep, which he started to raise. A book strikes our eyes. Peter the Great introduced this script and himself cut out the letters. You begin to read it. This language became a written language, a literary language, at the time of Peter I 
superseding the earlier church language. Newspapers are brought in. Peter the Great introduced them. You must buy different things. They all, from the silk neckerchief, the sole of your shoe, will remind you of Peter the Great. Some were ordered by him. Others were brought into use or improved by him, carried on ships, into his harbors, on his canals, on his roads. At dinner, all the courses, from salted herring through potatoes, which he ordered grown, to wine made from grapes, which he began to cultivate, will speak to you of Peter the Great. After dinner, you drive out for a visit. This is an assembly of Peter the Great. You meet the ladies there. They were admitted into masculine company by order of Peter the Great. Let us go to the university. The first secular school was founded by Peter the Great. You receive a rank, according to Peter the Great's table of ranks. The rank gives me gentry status. Peter the Great so arranged it. I must file a complaint. Peter the Great prescribed its form. It will be received in front of Peter the Great's mirror of justice. It will be acted upon on the basis of the general regalement. You decide to travel abroad following the example of Peter the Great. You will be received well. Peter the Great placed Russia among the European states and began to instill respect for her and so on and so on and so on. You know, I guess I, if I didn't know any better, I would say the uh, author, Mikhail Pogodin, uh, really admired Peter. What do you think? Alexander Pushkin, on the other hand, had somewhat of a dimmer view of Peter, as is evidenced by his work, The Bronze Horseman. While Pushkin admired the work Peter did to pull Russia out of the Dark Ages, he acknowledged the tremendous human cost. Here is an excerpt from the poem where we see poor Evgeny going crazy with anger and despair. Evgeny startled, became clear, the strange thoughts torturing his mind. He named the place where he played the flood, where ran the waters, spoilers fierce, merging in one rebellious stream, the lions, square and, at last, him, who stood without a move and sound, the copperhead piercing black skies, him, by whose fatal enterprise the city under sea took ground. He's awful in the nightly dark, and what a thought his brow sunk, what a great might in it lies, hidden, and what a fires in this steed, oh, proud horse, where do you speed, where will you down your bronze hoofs flitten, oh, karma's mighty sovereign, not thus you reared Russia sullen, into the height with a curb, iron, before an abyss in your reign, the poor madman circled around, the foot of the black idol's mass he gazed into the brazen face, of the half-planet's ruler proud. And was his breast oppressed? He laid, on the cold barrier his forehead, his eyes were veiled with a mist cover, his heart was all caught with a flame, his blood seethed, gloomy he became, before the idol looming over, and having clinched his teeth and fist, as if possessed by evil powers. Well, builder maker of the marbles, he whispered, trembling in a fit, you only wait. And to a street, at once he started to run out. He fancied 
at the gray czar's face, where the wrath suddenly embraced, was turning slowly around and straight along the empty square. He runs and hears as if there were, just behind him, the peals of thunder of the hard-ringing hoofs' reminders, a race the empty square across. Upon the pavement, fiercely tossed, and by the moon that pulled lighter. Having stretched his hand over roofs, the brazen horseman rides after him, on his steed of the ringing hoofs, and all the night the madman, poor, where'er he might direct his steps, aft him, the bronze horseman for sure, keeps on the heavy treading race. From Martin Sixsmith, in his book, Russia, a thousand-year chronicle of the Wild West, we have, in my opinion, this really balanced view of Peter. Quote, was Peter a despot or a reformer? In many respects, he was both. He introduced Western standards of behavior, but he used very un-Western methods to do so. He praised European values, but clung to Asiatic forms of governments. He rejected notions of parliamentary participation, something that was developing in Britain, for example, following the Glorious Revolution and the Bill of Rights in 1688. And he pursued efficiency, not democracy. He knew change was vital because of the tensions in society. The peasant revolts were a symptom of a system straining at the seams. But he wanted to control that change, and he certainly didn't want any reforms that would weaken the autocratic power he himself wielded. Now, this next paragraph from Sixsmith explains why Russia is what it is and why its leaders at the time, such as Archbishop Fyofan Prokokovich and Vasily Tatyashev contends, must be strong and why autocracy was the rule of the land for centuries to come. Quote, Indeed, Peter's reign saw the formulation of some of the most powerful justifications of autocracy as a system of government. The spiritual regulations, written in 1721, by Peter's reforming Archbishop Fyofan Prokopovich, state unequivocally that human beings are naturally selfish and disputatious. As a result, the firm hand of autocracy is necessary to restrain their inborn inclination towards conflicts and anarchy. The argument, says Fyofan, is particularly applicable to Russia because the nature of the Russian people is such that the country can be safeguarded only by autocratic rule. If another principle of government is adopted, it will be completely impossible to maintain its unity and well-being. Another Petrine thinker, Vasily Tatashev, concurs. He advances the contention we first heard voiced in the time of Kievan Rus, that Russia's borders are long and porous, that she is threatened by outside enemies, and that she therefore needs the unifying force of autocracy to prevent internal divisions leading to a weakening of national defenses. These are the arguments that would form the ideological justification for autocracy for generations to come. Next up is an excerpt from the book Czars, Russia's Rulers for Over 1,000 Years by James Duffy and Vincent Ricci. Quote, when he died in 1725 at the age of 52, Peter left an emerging nation ready to join the modern society of Western Europe. 
several hundred Russian factories were producing high-quality goods for the rich markets of Holland and England. Peter had also established a well-trained standing army of more than 200,000 battle-tested men, a formidable navy of 48 warships and nearly 1,000 smaller craft that had humbled the once mighty Swedish fleet. His widespread accomplishments were recognized by the National Assembly, which posthumously bestowed on him the grandiose titles of Father of the Country, Emperor, and the Great. During his reign, Peter attempted to improve the educational status of his fellow Russians. Here's an insight into that part of his time by Jeffrey Hoskins in his book, Russia and the Russians, A History. Peter might be accused, and was, of putting the cart before the horse, of promoting obtruse scientific research where, overwhel where the overwhelming majority of the population could not even read. Perhaps even more serious, since science was inculcated by foreigners at the time when the Orthodox Church was being downgraded, it acquired the reputation of being godless. Some Russians even whispered that learning was the work of the Antichrist. A suspicion of all scholars implanted itself among many ordinary Russians. It has proved extremely tenacious. However, the opposite process also took place, at least amongst the nobility. During the next two centuries, Russian learning in the humanities and in the social sciences and natural sciences gradually established itself as being among the finest in the world, enjoyed prestige in polite, polite society, and received priority in state expenditure. No small matter in a poor country. Furthermore, the spread of learning took place in a form whose implications were egalitarian or at least meritocratic. From Peter's time onward, completing secondary or higher education entitled one to enter state service higher on the table of ranks than the less well-educated. Besides, the spirit of science itself reinforced egalitarianism. Once tried and tested in, in it, one became a member of the International Republic of Learning, a community indifferent to the hierarchies of state and army. In this way, the Russian state nurtured powerful antibodies for the future. Michael Court, in his book, A Brief History of Russia, has this assessment of Peter. Whether the subject is economics, politics, foreign affairs, religion and social life, or education, one point is central to understanding Peter and his place in Russian history. Whatever his innovations, he was a product of the Russian political tradition, and therefore had only one master, the autocratic Russian state. In his view, autocracy alone could establish and guarantee the power and greatness of Russia. That is why he insisted that the nobility serve the state and that the people as a whole accept without question any of the state's demands or any restrictions it wished to impose, including serfdom. In case anyone dared to disagree with him or his methods, Peter established a special bureau called the Pribrzhensky Prikas to serve as a ruthless political police. He and Ivan the Terrible thus stand as the founders of Russia's political police tradition, which darkened Russian political life under all the succeeding czars 
and took on an even more monstrous form under their successors, the Communist Party leaders who ruled Russia for most of the 20th century. The last author I will use before I do my take on Peter is Derek Wilson from his book aptly entitled Peter the Great. Here he quotes the Soviet view of Peter from Boris Pilniak, who was a uh, Bolshevik. Quote, an abnormal man, always drunk, a syphilitic hypochondriac, who suffered from the psychopathic seizures of depression and violence, with his own hands choked his son to death. A monarch who could never restrain himself in anything, who did not understand that one must control oneself, a despot. A man who had absolutely no sense of responsibility, who despised everything, who failed to understand to the end of his life either historical logic or the physiology of the life of the people. A maniac, a coward. Frightened by his childhood, he came to hate the old world. Blindly, he accepted the new. He lived with foreigners who arrived for easy gain. He obtained a barracks upbringing. He looked up to the ways of a Dutch sailor as his ideal. A man who remained a child to the end of his days, who loved to play above all, and who played all his life at wars, at ships, at parades, at councils, at illumination, at Europe. A cynic who despised the human being in himself and others. An actor, an actor of genius. An emperor who loved debauchery above all, who married a prostitute, Menshikov's concubine, a man with the ideals of the barracks. The body was enormous, unclean, very sweaty, awkward, in-toed, thin-legged, eaten through and through by alcohol, tobacco, and syphilis. With years, the cheeks began to hang down on the round, red, old woman's face. The red lips became flaccid. The red, syphilitic eyelids would not shut tight, and behind them gazed mad, drunken, wild, child's eyes. He fought for 30 years. He played it a mad way, only because his mock soldiers had grown up and his fleet found itself cramped on the Moscow River and on the Preobrzhensky Pond. He never walked, always ran, swinging his arms, his thin legs in toad, imitating Dutch sailors in his gait. He dressed dirtily, tastelessly. He did not like to change underwear. He liked to eat much, and he ate with his hands. The enormous hands were greasy and calloused. Not a very popular and positive assessment of Peter, don't you think? So now we come to the part where I give my humble opinion of the first emperor of Russia, Peter I. While there was so much to admire about Peter, there's also a reality that many suffered under his reign, especially the serfs. But to point this out as a major failing of the Tsar would be wrong as well. We have to be careful, as historians, and all of us who listen to this podcast are historians, to not interpret someone's actions using today's standards of behavior and cultural norms. What Peter did when it came to his seemingly disrespect for the life of the serfs was the norm of the time by the elite. To think otherwise would have been abnormal. He lived in a harsh time when infant mortality was quite high, which in ways can numb you to death. Of the 14 children Peter and his two wives had, only four lived past the age of five, and only one, the future Empress Elizabeth, lived past the age of 30. Peter saw death from an early age. 
his father Zorilexi dying when he was only four, or when the Streltsy slaughtered members of his own family, fueled by rumors that his half-brother Ivan, Kozar, had been murdered. So when we judge him by his use of slave labor to dig the canals between the Neva to the Volga and the uncompleted Volga to the Don, and the tens of thousands of souls lost in the building of St. Petersburg, as well as the lives lost in his countless wars, we have to put into the perspective of the times he lived in before condemning the man. Now this is not to say he goes blameless, as his cruelty was legendary, especially with him being present at the torture of his son Alexei. The real question we need to answer about Peter is, did he invent modern Russia? To me, the answer is yes and no. The westernization of the Oriental Russia was already underway with the reign of his father Alexis, and it was moving along quite well with some minor stalling points. What Peter did do was to blast open the windows to the west and set the path inexorably in that direction, which could no longer be denied. Had Peter not come along, there was a chance that the modernization of the country, especially its army, would have led to disastrous consequences with people like Charles XII of Sweden taking huge swaths of territory in the north and denial of the southern ports by the Ottomans. Instead of saying that Peter invented modern Russia, I would prefer to say that he saved it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, next time, I'm going to be going on the his father, Alexei, and also uh, Mikhail Romanov, the first of the Romanov Tsars. I'm also working on some new avenues of expanding the podcast to reach more people and more excitingly to open the podcast to you, the listener, to allow you to actually interact with it. More news to come in the very near future. So now, as always, das vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.